Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope that everybody had merry holidays and a very happy new year. In our last show of the year, we talked about the big events of 2023 and how they're going to shape the coming year today. Our roundtable takes a look at what they think are going to be the big stories of the new year, as well as make some predictions for 2024. Joining us today, as they always uh, do, are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, um, welcome back. I hope everybody had terrific holidays and uh, a very happy uh, new year as we uh, get started in 2024, which is going to be a highly consequential uh, year, of course. Uh, Michael, uh, as always, uh, start us off, right? Congress uh, is still out, and I want to get to the big tectonic issues but some of the stuff that's actually going to be happening in the next couple of weeks are going to be uh, critical uh, over the course of the coming year. Obviously, we're going to go to a stage shutdown unless we get new uh, funding measures uh, by January 19 and, and thereabouts. Um, walk us through sort of the immediate uh, and, and really how they set the table and the stage uh, for the tone and tenor of this over the course of the year. Uh, the House Speaker went down. Uh, and I know that you're very close to him, went down to the southern border, highlighting uh, the need for a border deal. Folks have been talking about the fact that we need to do that. Walk us through the mechanics of this uh, immediately, but also what they mean for the year. Uh, sure. So, you know, as you know, we always end the year with a countdown, you know, the, the countdown toward midnight for the new year. So we're beginning the new year with a countdown. Uh, so how many days do we have left until the first CR expires? We have eight legislative days. How many days until the second CR expires. We only have 11 legislative days. And of course, we'll talk about politics later in the show, but we'll be talking about how many days until the Iowa caucus and how many days until the New Hampshire primary and same with the South Carolina primary. Uh, so I, I still believe uh, that the speaker uh, and you know his Democratic cohorts are going to be able to thread the needle on this. I think that we're very close to a top line agreement on appropriations. Uh, and if we can get there, uh, then I think the speaker can justify another short-term CR, even though he says he's not going to do anymore. I think if we had, because there's no way if they come to a top line agreement, even today, that they can have the appropriations bills ready to uh, be on the floor by the 19th. It's just impossible. So I think he right. can justify another short-term CR, provided there is a, a top line agreement. Uh, now, there's definitely a lot of challenges in there, the border being one, because the border is definitely the challenge facing the supplemental. Uh, now, as we mentioned on the last show, that the administration got engaged, I think, way too late. But the fact that they did, uh, there was a lot of progress on those discussions. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, in order to get the Ukraine passed, the speaker has made his point clear from this day one that there's got to be border policy on there. I think it's why he went down to the border, too, to stress that this is a problem. And this is a, a, a bipartisan problem. So I still think that they will come to some kind of deal and a deal that people on the far left are going to be very unhappy with and people on the far right are going to be unhappy with. I mean, the folks on the far right are staking out a position that's just impossible to meet. I mean, right now, Chip Roy, who we've talked about a bunch on the show, uh, said to a dear colleague uh, earlier this week, saying that he wants uh, to shut down the government unless the president signs HR2 into law, which is their draconian uh, border measure. And we've talked about that a lot, too. I think the Democrats can cherry pick a few things out of there that they can live with to agree to some border policy. Uh, but 
you know, if they don't, the guys on the far right, they don't get everything they want, they're not going to be happy. And if they do get everything they want, they're still going to move the goalposts as we've seen in the past. So I think the near term things we need to keep our eye on are, you know, getting this done, uh, getting getting a top line deal so we can get appropriations done, getting a border deal done so we can get the supplemental done. Now, there is some talk now, not of a year long CR talk continues, but there's also talk of a gimmick now to say, OK, instead of a year long CR, we do a year long appropriation which is kind of like a year-long CR, but it gives them a little more freedom and flexibility as far as new starts go and eliminate the 1% cut that would take place on April 30th. Uh, those talks are alarming to me because I still think that's very damaging to the, the U.S. military, uh, but that is something that is being held out there too. I don't think we're there yet. That's to break the glass uh, approach, and I don't right. think, I, like I said, I don't think we're, we're ready for that yet. Uh, Dove, from from your uh, standpoint, um, what are going to be some of the budgetary dynamics and what does the department need to be doing? As Michael said, right, we're looking at a variety of different permutations. Uh, I think, um, you know, we've discussed if the comptroller team and Mike McCord had not been in this seat, it might be a tougher go for the Pentagon. The problem with the Pentagon is it always makes it work and it makes it look easy. And so everybody assumes they can take more risk. Walk us through a little bit of some of the challenges and some of the decisions and, and what this arc looks like from a department standpoint as a former controller. Well, um, yeah, I, I agree that uh, Mike McCord minimizes the damage, but there's going to be damage. Let me start with the fact that every additional CR means that you're not starting a new program. And I know that China's economy is right now in, in trouble. Uh, Patrick can expand on that. But that doesn't mean that she's not continuing to spend on defense. And our job has been to make sure we stay ahead. Well, it's kind of hard to stay ahead if you're going to lose half the year uh, before you can even start a new program. So that's problem number one. Uh, problem number two is replicator. Now, Kath Hicks is giving more and more detail about what she means uh, there are a lot of issues with that, though. Uh, how do you manage the logistics of Le Replicator? How, do you, how does it really work in, in a strategic sense? And ultimately, will Congress go along with taking money out of other projects in order to fund Replicator? And this is kind of, uh, again, an adjunct to what I was just saying generally about staying ahead of China. Uh, the focus on, on Gaza, the focus on the Middle East, which we didn't want to do, <clears throat> does take our eyes off the central issues, whether it's whether it's China or Ukraine. I assume we'll talk about Ukraine momentarily. But clearly, the, the budget challenge is how do you not only fund startups, you know, they want to give a billion dollars, say, to D, DIU um, with the, the Defense Innovation Unit, um, but it hasn't gotten it yet. And then how's it going to spend that money and how quickly will it spend that money and how will that money actually be spent on things that relate to truly staying ahead of China? To me, those are the biggest budget issues facing us this year. Um, and, uh, you know, on Replicator, right, some details are emerging. It looks like the Air Force has a candidate in the Replicator program. It looks like the Navy has three candidates, right? So everybody's been asked to sort of throw their ideas into this this pot uh, as as folks figure out what 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 uh, this 
looks like, given that it was something the deputy secretary did to sort of spur thinking uh, and maybe, you know, address some of her frustrations about the speed with which uh, we're moving on some of this stuff. Uh, Jim uh, and Patrick, you know, you can talk about the wide uh, political dynamic uh, in, in Washington as well as on your beats, right? I mean, Europe, in your case, Jim, and, and Indo-Pacific, Patrick, and yours. But what are what are your, your senses on how all of this are, are, is moving and some of your uh, predictions, right? I mean, we're waiting on uh, more Ukraine aid. Uh, the Ukrainians are doing uh, a terrific job. There's a little bit of debate about whether or not we're backing them until the end or sort of backing them until the middle or want them to strike a deal, right? I mean, there's a little bit of confusion about whether or not there's going to be pressure on the administration and whether that's what's driving this delay uh, or, or whether it is uh, just purely a, a, a fight over border and, and everything else. What's your sense, Jim, on, on where we are and how this issue actually plays out over over the coming year, given that Ukraine has been a signature achievement of the administration? Will there well, be the momentum through the end of the year? Because the poor Ukrainians are still getting the daylights pounded out of them, frankly. Well, they are. And it's we're in a, in a miserable state right now, I think, in terms of trying to figure out where we need to be going this year. And it's not just where does the West or the U.S. need to be going in terms of assistance for Ukraine? But what does Ukraine do now? What's their plan B, uh, given that this uh, offensive has not quite worked out the way we all were hoping that it would? And that we're finding ourselves in this new year kind of in a different state of war with, uh, with Russia in terms of what's happening on the battlefield in Ukraine. The Ukraine planners um, and the higher command there, Zelensky and company, have got to figure out, uh, is there going to be a reset this year? Uh, are they? What were the problems coming out of last year that have now shown up on the battlefield in terms of how ready they were for the offensive? Not just in terms of equipment, but also in terms of training. Um, it, it, it seems that the training uh, ran into issues. We've heard about those. Uh, in terms of, of how appropriate the training was or thorough the training was or did it last long enough? I mean, there's a lot of questions coming up about that. But but one way or another, we are, we're, we're in this stalemate. Uh, and so what do we do about that? What does Ukraine do about that? And for Ukraine to figure itself out, it needs to know that there's going to be consistent assistance coming from the West, particularly from the United States. And what does that assistance look like? There have been calls for... Uh, the uh, for Ukraine to dig in right now and hold what they've got uh, as they do a reset uh, that could take almost all year to, to get in the assistance that, that's still in the pipeline, like the F-16s, to continue with training and to be ready for an offensive in 2025. Now, that kind of thinking isn't unusual in a long war. Uh, if you look at World War II, there were periods like this. But politically, that doesn't do well in the West where we have a short attention span and a lot of political pressures, particularly this year. So I think I think Ukraine has got some big decisions ahead of itself. Um, and uh, and the West does as well to see if we're able to carry on through this year, giving the kinds of assistance that Ukraine is going to need if they do a reset or if they have a big offensive uh, in 2025 or, 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 or whatever, they're gonna need to have some faith in the West that we're with them. So the next couple of months are gonna be critical, particularly the, the signals coming out of Washington about are we with you or not? What are your plans, Ukraine? Uh, can we all get together on the plan and agree on the plan? I mean, there's a lot of big decisions to be made. And the, this, this kind of squeaks and squawks coming out of Washington about should there be a, uh, 
negotiations? Should we go ahead and, and give Crimea to, to Russia? I mean, this doesn't help things. And, and, and frankly, if you ask me, I guess as you have, where the administration is on this, I, I, I don't know. I think there's, there's, there is still a debate at the highest levels on what to do right now, particularly given this election year and the need to focus on the election and also to focus on the growing problems and tensions in the Middle East. And I just want to say, in terms of what Dove said about attention span and uh, in, in, in terms of issues that the White House has, my feeling, having gone through in the Pentagon, uh, watching uh, the attention being paid to Afghanistan recede as we got into Iraq and all of the problems that came with Iraq, uh, bandwidth problems uh, at a minimum uh, caused us to focus less on Afghanistan and more on Iraq. And that caused major issues uh, over time in Afghanistan. And I'm starting to get a feel and I understand why I'm I got it. But but uh, but what's happening in the Middle East, which is growing more and more in terms of tension and and demands um, uh, attention from the administration, that's going to begin to put Ukraine uh, on the back burner. Uh, and that concerns me because right now we need to be focused there as well. And so I'm hoping there's going to be bandwidth in the administration to be able to handle both these issues, including China. Is there a danger, uh, Jim uh, and Patrick, want to get your uh, sense on this as well? Because obviously everything right. I mean, we did this in order to uh, signal resolve, uh, not just, uh, you know, to defend Ukraine and, and, and Russia, but that we put this in a we're deterring uh, China. Uh, context. Um, we're running our inventories down. We're running our inventories down very uh, deeply. Our mutual friend Mackenzie Eaglin of American Enterprise Institute has made this point repeatedly, as many on this program have. We're depleting our inventories. We're not filling them as quickly as we need to be filling them. Uh, and then we're making this an issue of resolve, right? We said we'll be in Afghanistan as long as it takes. We'll be in Iraq as long as it takes. And we were there as long as we were willing to tolerate it. And it seems like you know, if we punt here, what's the signal you're sending to Putin? Eventually you're winning and, and you're messaging China. How dangerous is this lack of clarity and lack of solidarity and lack of focus? Because we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, given the rest of the planet is, is watching whether we can actually do that or whether we are the impatient superpower and we're going to check out. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. And that's first that signal really came out loud and clear about just wait the Americans out with Vietnam, uh, you know. Uh, so this isn't something new in terms of how nations look on the ability of the U.S. to stay focused. But I think you're absolutely right right now. The signal is being sent to Putin and he's expressed this. This confidence that he has been expressing is based on this idea that he is winning and he can wait out not just the United States, but the West as well. Um, and so. Uh, you know, whether it's the de depleting our stocks because we're providing a lot of that to Ukraine or just the bandwidth issues, you know, we're going to have to deal with that. We're in a period of time uh, where uh, we're going to run into this problem. Democrat or Republican, uh, we've, we, we're in a bad place right now. And I think it comes down to probably coming down to, uh, and I don't see this happening in election year, but We've got to, the West and particularly the United States and the people here need to understand we're in a bad place in terms of the um, challenges that we're facing globally and that we have, we're going to have to really dig deep to try to get our way, see our way through this. 
uh, whether it's increasing the defense budget or doing things right now that might be very hard to do in this in this election year. We can't pause a year for the elections to happen and then pick it back up next year. Uh, this is this is critical. Uh, and I, my 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 fear is that um, uh, we're, we're going to sugarcoat things. Uh, particularly in the election year, we're going to sugarcoat things and not level with everyone about the challenges we have. And they're very broad. And that's that's some bad news that I, I'm sure the Biden administration doesn't want to lay out this year. So, you know, I, I, I'm not going to throw my hands up, uh, but we've we've got to somehow get that message out to the American people that, that we're in a tough situation now. It's more than just walking and chewing gum at the same time. It's more complicated than that these days. Uh, Patrick, uh, what's your sense on uh, sort of right? I mean, a little bit on what uh, Jim just said and the messaging that it sends, uh, because obviously the Chinese are watching very quickly. But this is a very dynamic region and there's a lot going on simultaneously. It was a great article that you had uh, on North uh, Korea and Dove. We're going to come to you on the on the war, uh, the uh, Israel's war on Hamas in a moment. But talk, put this sort of in the broader context and how. Ukraine and Russia continue to be connected to China, right? China, uh, revelation that China has been sending some very advanced machine tools to the Russians that are obviously helping their war economy. So they might not be sending artillery shells or Shahed drones, but they are uh, sending capability there that the Russians are turning into capability. And all of the other dynamic pieces as they're moving in, in, in the Asia Pacific and what we need to be focused on. Well, broadly, the revisionist powers are indeed coalescing, and this is therefore indeed a dangerous year. But I don't look at the year with dread. I look at it with uh, being resolute and being more strategic and working more intelligently with allies and partners being uh, critical to seeing our way through this difficult year. Um, the PLA uh, and China uh, are uh, determined to make a new status quo over the Taiwan issue as the election looms here on the 13th. Um, so that's going to be a major challenge this year. And that's in addition to the fact that China indeed is uh, – propping up the, the Russian economy, just as North Korea is uh, in a very strong defense partnership now for the foreseeable future with Russia, with even ballistic missiles, not just mortar shells and artillery shells showing up in Ukraine. Um, and, and Kim's promise of uh, launching more military spy satellites being no doubt uh, something that's benefited by Russian support. Um, and I, you know, this, both North Korea and China are determined to create the the, the pretense, if not the reality, of new fronts in the Indo-Pacific um, to try to um, essentially reaffirm the fear and the dread that America is overstretched and is in terminal decline, which they actually believe, if you're Xi and Kim. Um, and some American pessimists and other pessimists think that's true, too. I don't happen to agree with that. I think we are taxed and we are uh, in definite need of strategic resets and, and thinking things through. But we have um, more uh, capability uh, than those critics give us uh, credit for, and they have more problems than they would like to own up to. And I think the shakeup in the PLA leadership, especially in the rocket forces, uh, as well as in the strategic support force this past year, uh, is a, a good illustration of the fact that the Chinese are, are corrupt um, and broken in ways that we just don't see. Um, and same thing with North Korea. North Korea's economy... 57% of the economic growth uh, of, of the exports to China, which accounts for 90% of their exports, um, were in wigs, in, in fake eyelashes. 
I'm not making that number up. I mean, that's $157 million of a $300 million export, you know, for North Korea. So things are broken in these in these sort of communist countries. Um, and we shouldn't just um, throw up our hands and think that we are uh, exhausted and therefore we can't compete. But we're going to have to be more intelligent. So, you know, when I heard Charlie Kupchan on NPR talk about or on uh, the news hour uh, last night talk about the need for a defensive strategy in Ukraine, it sounds about right to me as an American that we have to mind our own sort of equities uh, globally. And yet we, we don't we cannot let Ukraine down. But if Ukraine can switch to a more defensive strategy that's more sustainable for us, if that's possible, um, that does sound right to me. Now, I'll let others who are focused specifically on Ukraine talk that out. But same thing with the Middle East. How do we make sure that we're protecting Israel, protecting uh, stability the much we can with our, our, our partners there without uh, creating a multi-front war? Because I'm sure the Islamic State would love for us to go after, you know, see the war broaden into something that is is in, indeed overstretched for us. And then that would leave exposed the South China Sea, the Korean Peninsula, the East China Sea, and more. And we cannot afford for that to happen. We do have to think strategically about our priorities. Dove, uh, you know, and and Patrick uh, just uh, did uh, the ramp uh, into uh, the Gaza war. Um, walk us through the dynamics that we're seeing here, because, you know, as we've discussed on this program, Bibi Netanyahu has a variety of different agenda items, and only one of them is fighting Hamas or the appearance of fighting Hamas. There's this concern that the military campaign is actually designed, as senior leaders said in the beginning, to make uh, Gaza uninhabitable and unviable. And now, you know, Bibi Netanyahu is is looking to get that Philadelphia corridor, corridor the nine miles uh, in Egypt, in the Sinai that lines the southern edge uh, of Gaza, the concern that he just wants to open the border and empty out everybody into the Sinai, which which is what the Egyptians haven't wanted. Uh, a little bit of debate and discussion about who exactly was striking the Rafa road, whether it was, you know, Egyptians who were striking that road to keep uh, for that border from opening or whether it was uh, the Israelis that were doing it. Um, a concern that Bibi is actually trying to exacerbate Joe Biden's political problems uh, in order to help Donald Trump, uh, right? I mean, his political, um, um, uh, uh, you know, sense that he will get a more unrestrained hand uh, if he's got uh, Trump in office. Then there's uh, the concern that he will start a war. Uh, you know, I've discussed this with some senior um, uh, retired and, and actually uh, serving people about whether or not uh, Bibi would like to start a war with Iran that he wants us to get involved in, because then that helps his political situation than what's going on in the West Bank. Well, walk us through some of the mechanics. Uh, and you've written thoughtfully about this uh, two pieces, uh, actually, in the past week, uh, one about uh, the importance of U.S. Uh, naval presence and the other one about Israel's most dangerous minister. How is this dynamic playing and how does it actually affect the political dynamic in the United States? Because Joe Biden has cast his lot with Israel. And it is proving to be very bad uh, for his political base and all the people he needs to beat Donald Trump uh, in uh, 2024. Well, let's let's start with um, the war in Gaza itself and the Philadelphia corridor. Philadelphia corridor is actually a border area. People may not know this. That's why I'm explaining it. It's about nine miles long, as you said. It's a strip of land between Egypt and uh, the Gaza Strip. And it was set up as uh, a buffer zone in the 1979 peace treaty with Egypt. Now, what Netanyahu is essentially saying is, 
we don't trust the Egyptians anymore. And we want to take control of this whole area because the Egyptians have not done enough to stop weapons coming into to Gaza from Egypt. Now, he's picking a fight with the Egyptians. Which, which, the, which the Egyptians reject, right? I mean, the Egyptians right. say, yeah, absolutely. we have Sisi actually is, lost troops. Def- yeah, right. yeah. Sisi is saying, wait a minute. The, you have no basis for this argument. And the fact is, he's picking a fight with Egypt when he needs Egypt in order to help solve this Gaza Gaza problem. So that one is very hard to understand other than, again, Bibi just, like you said, trying to get people to focus on a whole bunch of things at the same time. And that just allows him to continue to do what he wants to do. Now, there's a lot of friction inside that government. Um, Two of the ministers, one of them about whom I wrote, Schmatrick, who I really think is the most dangerous because he controls the money. He's the finance minister and Ben Gvir, who uh, is a convicted felon, uh, have argued that the best thing to do is just kick all the Gazans out of Gaza. Now, they don't say where to send them, but it's pretty clear what they want to do is send them to Egypt. That's not going to make CC any happier than the Philadelphia corridor issue. Um, and it's not at all clear that uh, Netanyahu opposes what they're saying, even though he publicly kind of backs away, because in, it's looking more and more that these guys are just his cat's paw. They say what he's thinking. Uh, there was an argument, for example, uh, whether the war cabinet, that that group of three plus two observers that is supposedly running the war, should think about how to deal with the day after you would have thought that's exactly what they should be thinking about. But Schmatrick gets Netanyahu to agree that it should be the larger cabinet, which is dominated by these right-wingers, that looks at this. And of course, they don't want to look at it at all. So you've got difficulties there. There was a big fight just the other day. Uh, Bibi had called a meeting of the uh, military leadership, uh, the chief of staff, wanted to is in fact setting up a review committee that will look at just the military operational implications of October 7th. The right wingers went nuts and they attacked the military leadership. And again, BB, all he did was bring the meeting to an end after three hours. And apparently they were screaming so loud that the press heard them outside the doors. So you've got cracks in the Israeli government. Uh, whether he wants to go after after Iran or not, is not at all clear. The Iranians are being very cagey. They're saying all kinds of stuff, but they're not doing anything much. And quite frankly, right. even yeah. when uh, when they killed uh, the deputy direct, the, the deputy commander of Hamas up in Beirut, um, Nasrallah, the head of uh, Hezbollah, he didn't say he was going to go to war with Israel. He made all kinds of noises, but he's waiting for Israel to attack him. Now, it's possible that he might take advantage of the fact, and I wrote about this, that we moved the Gerald Ford out of uh, the eastern Mediterranean and we're replacing it with a, an amphibious ready group that doesn't have anything like the firepower that the carrier has. And that might be a signal to uh, Hezbollah that male, maybe we are losing a little bit of interest and maybe they can uh, escalate and start a border war. That would be a disaster for us. It's the wrong signal. And that's why I've argued we better get another carrier out there real fast. But again, you've got people in the Israeli government, ministers, who are saying, yeah, we really ought to go after Lebanon. And so 
BB doesn't throw these people out. He lets them talk. And when they talk about clearing out Gaza of its civilians or when they talk about attacking Lebanon or when they talk about a, a break with Egypt, uh, he seems to be kind of OK with that, because if he wasn't, he'd throw them out. Uh, Dove, although, you know, in fairness, the Gerald R. Ford uh, was uh, at the end and was its deployment was extended uh, and, you know, she stayed on station a little bit longer. There's still a carrier in the Mediterranean and we can send uh, another carrier out because now the Navy at least has caught up from uh, the, the carrier availability glut uh, that it was in. At one point, we had seven carrier battle groups deployed at the same time. Yeah, which, but, which the, but the carrier, great... the, the carriers in the Western Med and all I'm arguing is that it ought to be in the Eastern right. Med. Uh, right. By the it, way, it, one other exactly. point that I sh- that I should have made, which I, I think is is very important and that Jim kind of hinted at this. Uh, we have uh, essentially end run. We the administration rather has end run the Congress by shipping uh, initially one hundred six billion dollars worth of ammunition, one hundred six million, excuse me, not billion uh, of ammunition to Israel without going to Congress for approval. Uh, I was told by a senior State Department official it wasn't going to be the only time that happened. And indeed, we've sent another tranche to Israel that way. And what really puzzles me is why we're not doing that for Ukraine. We could do the exact same thing. It might not be everything Ukraine needs, but at least it would show that the administration is determined to help Ukraine no matter what the obstacles are in Washington. And by not doing that, We're sending a very, very bad signal both to Kiev and to Moscow. And I am just puzzled as to why we don't do that. Maybe uh, maybe Mike has an answer. Um, and and we're we're going to go with that. But what I also thought uh, was interesting, uh, Dove, was uh, on uh, the anniversary of Soleimani's death when ISIS uh, attacked uh, Iran, killing a hundred people and wounding uh, many more, about a hundred people and wounding uh, many more. How tempered Iranian uh, response was. Uh, and and then ISIS obviously taking credit for it, uh, given that you know as far as they're concerned, Iran is uh, the the bad guy in their conflicts uh, as well. Obviously, given their support to the Syrians uh, and and the like. So I thought that that was kind of again you know adding to that sort of interesting dynamic because I think everybody was thinking, oh my God, the Israelis did this, and and what is that? Uh, what does that mean? Given that it, it came on the heels of um, the Israeli strike on the Hamas leader in Beirut, uh, that. Uh, obviously, uh, that, uh, you know, it was been reported that Jerusalem didn't give Washington any warning until the strike was actually underway, which annoyed the living crap out of folks uh, in, in Washington. Uh, my, uh, Michael, let me uh, go to you and start you off on the political projections uh, and predictions for the year. Unfortunately, on this program, we have been talking about how, uh, you know, the, our, our sentiment is that actually uh, Donald Trump has a great likelihood of becoming the next president. It is becoming a little bit of a pop of Washington, sort of like, you know, it's all over. Uh, Michael, you've been one of the people who have been saying there's there's still a long time between now and the election uh, and how this plays out. And indeed, some folks are saying that, look, I mean, the, the final candidates could be very different, might not be Joe Biden. Joe Biden's not stupid. And he also understands where he is, even if he's revitalizing his playbook. Give us some of the predictions, the political predictions, and how do you think this year works out because it's highly consequential european friends of mine are talking about you know hey we got to hedge ourselves friends in asia have said the same thing how does this year play out as far as you're concerned politically okay so uh my disclaimer is is a long way to go 
But uh, I think, and I think we should talk about the House and the Senate briefly as well, right? If I had to make a prediction now, I would say that the Republicans recapture the Senate. Uh, right now, they're down 51 to 49. They have 49 Republicans, 51 Democrats. We saw Joe Manchin announce he's not running for election. So West Virginia is a goner. West Virginia's seat will go uh, Republican. So that puts it at 50-50. There are six other seats in play for the Republicans. Montana, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arizona, Nevada, and Michigan are all held by Democrats. They're all in play. The Republicans only need to win one of those six to take control. I think the odds are in their favor. Uh, and the Democrats really have no Senate seats in play for them to flip. Uh, and on the House side, yes, the Republicans have a narrow House majority, uh, but I'm starting to believe now that the Republicans will keep uh, the House after the election for a variety of reasons. One, uh, redistricting in North Carolina favors them dramatically. They, they're going to pick up a lot of seats there. Um, they're probably going to pick up the seat in Alaska because they won't have uh, two Republicans uh, running this time. Uh, I think they're in better shape in Colorado with Lauren Boebert changing districts because uh, I think she had a good chance of losing. Democrats will have a good chance to pick up some seats in, in New York and other places. Uh, I also think that we'll see uh, a lot of primaries for the squad. Uh, and I think some of the squad folks will not be returning uh, next year. Uh, but again, if I had to put money on it, I think the Republicans maintain their, their slim majority in the House. I also think having Trump on top of the ticket for Republicans, even though I'm not a Trump supporter, actually helps the Republicans in the House. Remember, you know, in the, um, the 2020 election, even though Trump lost, uh, the Republicans gained 13 seats in the House and they thought they were going to lose 25 because uh, Trump pulls out a voter that doesn't usually vote in an off-year election and in many cases doesn't vote at all unless Trump is on the ballot. So that does favor them. Now, as far as the uh, general election, uh, you know, the big topic, look, um, I think this is going to be a, a long uh, year and the, the message is going to be very dark and very dour, I think, on, on both sides. Right. I mean, Biden uh, is pitch now is, you know, telling people if Trump returns to power, American democratic values, our freedoms, our even our safety are, are under threat. He's come out saying that the greatest threat Trump poses to our democracy, uh, because if we lose, we lose everything. And then he feels that he's determined to destroy American democracy at the same time. Uh, Trump has always had a dark message, and he's calling this election uh, the final battle. Uh, and it said if Biden wins a second term, America will no longer have a country uh, and the globe will quickly descend into a third world war, uh, which is total nonsense. He also predicted that last time Biden would win the stock market crash and stock market hit record highs. Right. But, you know, the president you know, uh, Trump has said as long as Joe Biden is in the White House, the American dream is dead. Uh, so I think, you know, that also bodes poorly for what happens after the election, because if, if, if whoever wins, half the country is going to think that, you know, the nation and its values are, are in serious trouble. And this is really a stark contrast to what we're used to in politics is a really uplifting vision of the future. We got from John F. Kennedy. We got that from Ronald Reagan. We got that from Barack Obama. Uh, and I think that Biden is going to have to sprinkle that in uh, to his message. Right. It's got to give some people some some hope for the future. Uh, also, look, Biden's approval ratings are bad. Yes. All right. But look, I mean, we talk a lot of this in the show about a lot of things we don't like that the Biden administration is doing. I disapprove of a lot of things the administration is doing, but I'm still going to vote for him, right? So I wouldn't use the approval rating as as the as the only measure uh, to measure him, right? At the same time, Biden does have an enthusiasm problem, right? Only 18% of Biden supporters uh, say to themselves on a scale of one to 10, they're a 10 in enthusiasm, where 44% of Trump supporters consider themselves a 10 on, on that scale. Now, look, there are good, there's good news for Biden on the economy. We did not end up in a recession like a lot of people projected. Um, 
Polling shows that people are starting to feel more positive about the, the economy. Uh, uh, the employment numbers are great. Unemployment is only 3.5%. Wage growth was 4.1%, which is well above inflation. Inflation is being tamed at 3.1%. Gas prices are down uh, to just over $3. Uh, we're actually pumping more oil now than we did under the Trump administration. That's something that Biden doesn't want to publicize because he doesn't want to hurt himself with progressives. But that does take the wind out of the sail of the arguments on, on some of the other side. So I, I – Look, I love my country. I believe in my fellow Americans. I think at the end, I can't imagine that people voted for Biden last time are going to vote for Trump this time. And it's really going to be, in some degree, a lesser of two evils. And it's going to be an election where chaos versus stability. And I just don't think people want not only return to the chaos we had, we saw even more chaos after the last election. This, remember, January 6th happened after the last election. The 91 indictments happened after the last election, right? And a lot of the revelations you know, former Trump officials talking about, you know, former military who died in combat, you know, being called suckers and losers. And the fact he didn't want wounded military, you know, at, at certain events, uh, you know, and I think we've had the Eugene Carroll cases. We have a lot of things that I think uh, Trump is white noise now. He's going to be front and center, uh, you know, for the next year. And I think a lot of people are going to say, geez, this is not what I want. And he's going to continue to show people that he's just this vile, selfish, lying, idiotic clown. And I just don't believe the American people are going to put him back in, in the White House again. I think there are some people who would agree with you, but then I think, you know, it's amazing that in the last election, 10 million more Americans voted for Trump than they did the first time, despite uh, or because of what he did in the four years that uh, he was in office. I mean, I was talking to a uh, retired uh, graybeard uh, military uh, friend, and he said, look, what American people in Washington is missing is that Trump is going uh, and approaching retired military people to replace the current active duty military because everybody serves at Trump's uh, will be serving at Trump's uh, uh, pleasure. So, you know, expect CQ Brown to be fired, expect uh, the vice chief to be fired, the service chiefs to be replaced with people who he believes are ideologically going to execute uh, his uh, vision for the military. And, you know, his hope is going to be that he can get these folks confirmed. Uh, and, you know, if he, if he does get uh, even, uh, you know, split control of the of the Senate and be able to uh, to drive it through. So, I mean, there there is some concern that this time around he is coming at this with a much more organized plan and, and make sure that it doesn't have Jim Mattis's and, and Mark Esper's and anybody else uh, who could serve as a, as a potential break on, uh, you know, his his vengeance campaign, if you will. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, and I want to quickly go around the horn on what you guys each think are going to be the most interesting predictions uh, on your breeds and, and more broadly what we ought to be paying attention to. Dove, uh, Jim, and then Patrick, uh, bring us home. Well, first, I think the war in Gaza will end. Uh, it'll probably be some kind of deal that will uh, uh, not totally eliminate Hamas. There's more and more talk about, uh, even in Israel, uh, about somehow having a, a leadership that is Palestinian uh, with some kind of international oversight. Uh, that's probably the way it could go, um, but it'll be very tough to eliminate Hamas. And I think the uh, assassination in Beirut is a harbinger of, of what the new uh, strategy is going to be, basically picking people off uh, as they did after the Munich massacre. I think there will also be a deal on Ukraine. Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult, to, even if the current supplemental gets through, to keep getting more supplementals as we get closer to the election. Uh, it's simply not 
as important to the Congress as it was a couple of years ago. It's certainly not as important to the American public as it was a couple of years ago. Whether it should be important is a, def- a different issue. I think it should be extremely important. But there it is. I think there'll be some kind of pressure on Zelensky to cut a deal. Uh, I think we're going to hit the Houthis. We still haven't really done that. They're firing away at our people. Uh, we have not taken them out. We're afraid that if we go after them, that will upset the Saudis. Uh, if we go, and we certainly are afraid to go after the Iranians in any way. Uh, but I think that will happen as well. Uh, so those are just a couple of thoughts, uh, primarily about the Middle East. I, I do think one thing to watch is how China deals with Sri Lanka. Patrick can expand on that. Uh, the IMF didn't bail out Sri Lanka. The Chinese did. There, there are billions of dollars in debt. And does that now mean that the stranglehold that people say China's had on Sri Lanka for a while actually comes to pass? You could also add India to that, right? Uh, given concerns about Modi and an increasingly illiberal um, uh, illiberal democracy uh, there, unfortunately, for the world's largest democracy, as it's often uh, uh, said. Um, Jim, kind of walk us through what's on your radar screen and what should be on everybody's radar screen over the year, right? I mean, we have concerns about the rise of the far right in, in Europe, whether it's in France. A great story by the New York Times, by the way, uh, or, or uh, Washington Post, I can't remember uh, now, um, sort of detailing right French right-wingers and folks around Marine Le Pen saying, look, we have to replace all the leaders and get pro-Russian leaders and have a grand uh, European alliance against Americans, because the problem really is America, uh, you know, not Russia. All of these people are paid for, brought to you and paid for by uh, the Russians, uh, of course. But it's interesting how far they've progressed in virtually every European democracy and Gert Wilders is just uh, the tip of that iceberg. What, what are some of the storylines, themes, and predictions you have over the coming year, coming out of Europe and uh, affecting the world in the United States, or vice versa? Well, I, I think what I would say is over the course of this year ahead, uh, things will develop. And I think Michael and Dove laid out wonderfully, uh, and I can I agree with them. I wouldn't change a word, particularly the, what, what Michael said about that we all love our country and uh, we're not, we, we're hard on the administration, but we're not, I'm not gonna vote for Trump, that's for sure. Uh, despite uh, issues I might have with the Biden administration. So so I agree with what those two colleagues have said, but but I think over the course of the year for me, we're going to see a, what I'll call a crisis of confidence. <laughs> I think that term has been used in another uh, for other more crisis like situations. But I but I think it's a way to say there's going to be a crisis of confidence in Europe about the United States uh, and uh, U.S. leadership and uh, and and NATO and and I hate saying all that because that's not what people are used to hearing me say. But I think I think with with Ukraine and how uh, and what Dove was just laying out about uh, U.S. involvement with Ukraine, U.S. support for Ukraine, where the public is, where the Congress is, the money trickling down. Um, and and how that emboldens Putin and how he will use that as well to stoke a crisis of confidence in the United States. I think it's going to be a fertile ground over the next year. Uh, and, and, you know, Le Pen aside, I think even even more moderate right thinking Europeans are going to start saying, you know, have we reached kind of the high watermark of how much confidence we can have in U.S. leadership and the U.S. involvement in European security 
that we're beginning to are we on the downward slope of that and um and so I think that's going to be a, a building theme potentially this year as uh, the crises hit uh, the administration. The, the administration has to deal with Donald Trump. We're going to have a lot of rhetoric. Uh, and I think uh, I think that will tend to uh, to seed the Europeans with this idea of uh, the U.S. is not what it once was in terms of a bulwark, that they're that the Americans are just like all of us. Uh, and we've got these that we, we've got to understand better that we we Europeans are going to really have to play a better role in terms of 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 uh, of leadership, in terms of, of bringing forward what's needed in terms of security, because because the U.S. is just not going to be the, there the way they used to be. And if Europe at the end of the day, at the end of the year uh, or next year, uh, not they're not able to do that, then you're going to have Putin who is going to find that maybe his his most fond dreams uh in terms of resurrecting the old imperial russia might be possible because we have proven that we haven't been able to stand up to him the way our rhetoric would have suggested so 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 bottom line is this year coming up is going to be critical can we prevent those seeds of this crisis of confidence from being planted and flowering uh, can we prevent that? Or is the ground going to be really fertile so that by the end of the year, we're going to really see a Europe that's that's really concerned about uh, the U.S. and what the, that holds for the future in terms of transatlantic security? Uh, as a uh, senior uh, friend in Brussels told me, the reason we're spending more money is not just Russia. We're worried where you end up going and what it is we need to start doing right now uh, to be ready for that uh, possible eventuality. Right. So what happens in Washington? clearly uh, affects the world. Patrick, you get the last word on whatever was on your mind and your predictions for 2024, because uh, every year is consequential, but this one may be a little bit more so, given concerns, right, that the clock is ticking and Xi Jinping keeps telling everybody, I'm taking Taiwan one way or another, and 2027 is looming out there, right? More, more people are saying they may be, there may be a running clock than we're willing to, ima- uh, we're willing to admit. Well, she has certainly said that unification of Taiwan is inevitable, although he has not said that he's going to use force to do it. He's just not ruled out the use of force as a means of doing it. Um, and I think that's a, an important differentiation. But I do think both Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un will challenge American power um, in the Indo-Pacific over Taiwan and on the Korean Peninsula this year. And how we react to that whether we're able to deter that and dissuade them and, and stare them down and stay strong will determine a lot about whether the U.S. is back in the Indo-Pacific or the U.S. is out of the Indo-Pacific. Um, I think we can succeed here because China really doesn't want to use force. They just want to intimidate what is likely to be a continuation of the DPP rule in Taiwan, but we'll have to wait for the election there. Uh, and on Korea, I think we're going to see a nuclear test or an ICBM trajectory test toward Guam or Hawaii that is going to create a crisis. Um, and we're going to have to stay strong. But I, I, as I've written today, you know, Kim Jong-un wants to sharpen his treasured sword. He doesn't want to fall on it. And I, I think we can deter them. I think things to watch will be the South China Sea because China thinks it can break maybe the Marcos administration, if not just isolate them on their par- policy. And they'll probably test them over the second time shoal. I think more interestingly that we haven't talked about is Indonesia. Um, I, I think Modi's election is given. He's going to get a third term this spring. But Prabowo coming to power, which I think is likely in the February election in Indonesia, 
is going to be a, a shock for many in the world and the region because we're used to Indonesia playing a very low-key role. Prabowo is not a low-key figure. Um, and I think that's going to be something of an adjustment. Um, and we'll see his brothers in town next week uh, for discussions. And, and we'll have to see how that election on Valentine's Day goes. Um, so those are some of my predictions of what we'll see. But I also would just add, um, we're going to have the continuation of shocks in both technological innovation and uh, tech-driven espionage. Um, so that's that's more of a status quo. But unfortunately, I think those things are going to get bigger and bigger and more pronounced. Um, and we're going to have to adjust to them and be agile and 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 stay innovative. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, happy 2024. And it's off to uh, a great start. Uh, and wishing everybody a happy, healthy, prosperous uh, new year. Uh, thanks very much to the audience uh, for joining us and for your time. And special thanks to all of our sponsors, Bell, HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and we welcome American Rheinmetall uh, to our uh, list of sponsors. Welcome aboard uh, and great to have you. Uh, and a reminder to check out all of our weekly podcasts or award-winning weekly podcasts, Canvas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog in Naval and Maritime Matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace uh, that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Uh, thanks very much again for joining us and tune in on Sunday for our very first business roundtable of the year where we take a look uh, at what we expect over the coming year. Until then, hope everybody has a great weekend, a great day, and we'll see you again on Sunday. Thanks very much.